Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Let's pray together and then we'll dive into our teaching. If you have a Bible, you can open up there as we're praying. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, but let's pray first. God, uh, we just sang that your son, Jesus Christ, who is also eternally God, the son of God from all eternity, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. At his name, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is, in fact, that king of kings, the one who is the lamb who was slain for our sins, the one who is resurrected, that we might have eternal life. And we pray as uh, we read your scriptures now, Lord, this uh, account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that you would open our hearts, that you'd open our minds to understand, to believe, and to have faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who is the victor who has defeated death, who has defeated sin, and has given us eternal life in his name. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, again, happy Easter, Deer Creek Church. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek. And this morning, it's Easter Sunday, and it just so happens that today on Easter, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we're also closing out our study in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for really close to six months now. And incidentally, this story that we're closing with is the resurrection of Jesus. It's his resurrection from the dead. And I have to admit, I've read the Gospel of Mark more than a dozen times. So 12, 13, 14, 15 times or so, somewhere in that range. And I have to admit that even though I've read this gospel almost a dozen times, maybe even more, I have to admit that it has never hit me just how strange and how odd the gospel of Mark actually ends. It is completely odd. It almost seems like something happened to Mark as he was writing the end of his gospel. If you have the gospel of Mark in front of you, Mark chapter 16, let me show you what I mean. This is the word of God. Beginning in verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out. Fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. <laughs> That's the end of Mark's gospel. He's, write, he's writing a biography of the life of Jesus, and here's Jesus resurrected from the dead. Three women run away afraid. The end. All right, let's pray. <laughs> What's up with Mark? Was Mark writing this and then all of a sudden he went into cardiac arrest and just dropped? 
or was Mark typing this up on his Microsoft Word? It crashed and he wasn't able to recover his ending and he had a deadline to meet, so he just sent it in as it ended with these women running away afraid. This is strange, isn't it? Very odd. Why close out your biography of Jesus in this way? Well, I actually think it's quite simple. To conclude this gospel, Mark wants to impress upon all of us one simple point, that the resurrection of Jesus is real, that it's real. So Mark, he he avoids all embellishment, he avoids all sensationalism, and he simply and directly recounts the resurrection of Jesus in all of its very understated simplicity because it's real. You see that in verse 1. Notice again, look at verse 1. You see that this resurrection, it was completely unexpected. In verse 1, we see that it's Sunday morning. The Sabbath was passed. The Sabbath was Saturday in Jewish culture. It was a day of rest, a day when the Jewish people were forbidden to work. And following this Sabbath on Sunday morning, we see these three women. Mark tells us it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bringing spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And now, if you followed with us in Mark up to this point, you know we've seen these three women before. In fact, Mark tells us these women, these disciples, were the only people who had followed Jesus all the way up to his death. It's Sunday morning here, but if you rewind back to Thursday night before Jesus' death, Jesus is having dinner with 12 of his apostles, 12 of his closest followers, and one by one, each and every disciple stared Jesus in the face, and one by one, following the lead of Peter, they pledge their allegiance to Jesus. They say, Jesus, I will follow you no matter what it costs. Jesus, I'm going to follow you even if it means that I'm going to be arrested. I will not abandon you, Jesus, even if I have to die with you. But then you push play, and as it moves on into Friday, one by one, each and every one of the disciples abandon Jesus. They all abandon him. All 12 of them. Judas Iscariot, who had followed him for some time, he actually betrays Jesus. He goes off and he gives Jesus' name to the Jewish and Roman authorities. He conspires against him to have him arrested. And then as soldiers move in to have Jesus arrested... Early Friday morning, James, one of Jesus' closest friends, he completely drops out of the story along with eight other apostles. They never are seen again in Mark's gospel. And then you remember Peter. Peter, who is infamous for never quite getting exactly who Jesus is. He had pledged he would never deny Jesus. He would die with him. He actually ends up denying him three times when questioned by a powerless slave girl. And then we even read that One disciple runs away naked from Jesus. This is Mark chapter 14. A young man followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. You can't make this stuff up, can you? (laughs) Everyone abandons Jesus, but not these women. Not these women. As Jesus is being crucified... On Friday afternoon, 
he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus was dying, he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple across the way in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion stood facing him, saw in this way that he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. And then Mark is very clear here. He says, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. These three women. All of the apostles abandoned Jesus, forsaken him, but these three women followed him all the way up to his death. And this continues. Not just Friday afternoon, but as Friday is coming to a close, Mark chapter 15, verse 46, they see this man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. He's taking Jesus off the cross, and we read, he bought a linen shroud... And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And then Mark makes it clear one more time. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Fast forward now to Sunday morning and here we see these three women one more time. As the sun is beginning to rise, these three women, they're heading to the tomb of Jesus with every expectation they're going to find a dead body. You see that in verse 1. Did you notice how this started? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. You see in the first century... The only way to cover the odor of a decaying corpse was to anoint it with aromatic spices mixed with oil. These women on Sunday morning, having witnessed the death of Jesus on Friday afternoon, having witnessed the burial of Jesus on Friday evening, now come to Jesus' tomb with every expectation that they have to anoint a decaying and rotting corpse. It's completely unexpected. No one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. The apostles didn't expect it. The disciples, they'd abandoned Jesus. They were confident that the crucifixion meant the end of his life and ministry. Joseph of Arimathea, the man who took him down from the cross, wrapped him in a linen shroud, prepared his body for burial. He had no expectation that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. He was just doing something that was pious in the eyes of many Jewish people. These women didn't expect it. They're bringing aromatic spices in order to cover up the odor of a decaying corpse. That's what makes this story so fascinating, by the way, because many people today, they look back at the story of resurrection and They think, well, of course, people in Jesus' day, of of course they believed in Jesus rising from the dead. They lived in a pre-scientific world. They lived in a time when they expected miracles and they expected supernatural occurrences. They lived in a world of wonder, not a world of science and reason. They expected things like this to happen, but that's certainly not what you see here, is it? No, no. Resurrection was completely unexpected because people rising from the dead was just as alarming and unexpected in 30 AD as it is today in 2023 AD. It just doesn't happen. So nobody expected this. And Mark, with no embellishment, no sensationalism, 
just the real, simple, and direct account of these three women says that this really happened and nobody expected it. But for just a moment, here's what I want to do. I want to focus in on these three ladies again because you notice Mark is very intentional. He wants to show not only that this resurrection was unexpected, but also that it was witnessed. It was witnessed. It was witnessed by these three women who were still alive during the time that Mark was writing this gospel. In fact, there's a man, his name's Tim Keller. He's written many books. He was a former pastor. In fact, one of his books, The Reason for God, has an entire chapter on the resurrection of Jesus. And you can pick it up out in our lobby if you're interested in reading more. But he makes this point that in the ancient world, people would name drop like this, putting in intentional names, first and last names like this as a way of saying, hey, I'm Mark writing this, but if you don't believe me, then go check out this story for yourself. If you want to check out the truth of my story, just go talk to these three women. They're still alive. They can corroborate everything I've said. In fact, they witnessed these very things with their eyes, repeating names like this. It was kind of like today when you put a footnote in your paper. It's like, hey, don't take my word for it. If you want to check these things out, go check out this source. This is a true authority. And if you were going to make up a resurrection, by the way, this is not how you would do it. No, because in ancient Jewish and Roman society, women were, they were considered unreliable. They were considered untrustworthy. So for that reason, women... They couldn't serve as authorities in religious matters. They couldn't serve as witnesses in a court of law. They could not even give official legal testimony. They were considered completely unreliable in that culture. This made me think about just the other day, uh, we were having a movie night at my house. And as I'm cleaning up the TV room, uh, I see out of the corner of my eye, in the corner of our room, there's an apple. And I go and I pick it up, and it's actually a half-eaten apple. And I lift it up, and I say, what is this? I have four kids. I said, what is this? Were you all born in a barn? Like, why do you not throw this apple away? Who left this apple on the ground? And as immediately as I said that, my two oldest kids, Eli and McLean, they said, that's Annie's. <laughs> so I looked at Annie, and I said, Annie, is this yours? And I kid you not, Annie looked back at me and said, that's not mine. It's yours. <laughs> <laughs> I say, Annie, don't lie. Tell me the truth. Is this your apple? And she said, no, Dad. It's your apple. <laughs> she doubles down on it. In ancient Jewish and Roman society, that's how they would have viewed the testimony of women. There were reliable sources, men, religious leaders, civil authorities, landowners, merchants. And then there were unreliable sources, slaves, children, and then women. In fact, many of the earliest critics of Christianity, they, they saw this, and they saw that the God of Christianity, Jesus, has started to spread throughout the Near East, and they would point to this account, and they would ridicule and discredit Christianity based on this. In fact, there was one philosopher, his name was Celsus. He wrote a letter to a church leader whose name was Origen, writing, oh, Origen, I see who you are. He said, oh, I see. You're one of those who believe in, quote, the gossip of women about the empty tomb. This is embarrassing. You really believe that? You're going to believe in the account of three women, three Jewish women, three women who live in dusty old Jerusalem? That's your witness? Those are your sources? In fact, 
Many Christians, this would have been hundreds of years after the Gospel of Mark was written. Mark wrote his Gospel probably around the year 64 to 70 AD. But hundreds of years after Mark had finished his Gospel, many people felt the embarrassment of this account of the resurrection of Jesus. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to embellish a little bit, make it sound more credible, especially for a Roman context. Because in the Roman world, they valued things like power, victory, sensation. So they took this resurrection story that is real and recounted by Mark, and they started to embellish it just a little bit to take a little bit of the embarrassment out. One of those uh, people who kind of rewrote this story, they said that on Saturday evening, as Roman officials were guarding the tomb, all of a sudden, two glorious angels came down from the sky. And these angels were so tall that their feet were on the ground, but their heads and their eyes were in heaven. And they enter into the tomb after rolling the stone away. And then they bring out Jesus. And, you know, these people who are witnessing this see that, The heads of these angels are going up into heaven, but then Jesus' head was above heaven. And then all of a sudden, out of the tomb came a cross. This is weird. It's kind of like walking out. And then a voice from heaven comes and says, Have you spoken to those who are asleep? And the cross then begins to talk and says, I have spoken to those who are so asleep. That sounds more credible, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it did in a Roman culture especially when you live in a culture that's about triumph and power and sensation and victory, witnessed by Roman officials first, not by three women. It sounds more trustworthy. That's not what Mark says. Because Mark's goal is not to make the resurrection sound trustworthy or to embellish that it might be more credible to a Roman audience. No, Mark's goal is to simply, directly recount what really happened. And on that day, Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, these three women witnessed the empty tomb of the resurrected Jesus. Look what he says in verse 3. And they were saying to one another, you even see the absent-mindedness and the embarrassment of these women as they're going to anoint Jesus. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Where's the power, Mark? Where's the triumph, the sensation? Where are the two angels in the talking cross? Nothing sensational. Nothing embellished. In fact, it's kind of embarrassing. Three women expecting to find a dead body, witness an empty tomb. And Mark is saying, if you don't believe me or if you want to check out the truth of the matter, just go talk to them. They're still alive. They can corroborate the whole thing. See, in the courtroom of the world, in the courtroom of public opinion, they say, you can't trust these women. But in the courtroom of God, he's just fine with these three women being the first who witness an empty tomb on Easter Sunday. You know why? Because it's real. It's real. It's not uncommon to hear similar critiques and ridicule swirling 
today about the weakness, the embarrassment of Christianity. Christians are naive, they're anti-intellectual, they're anti-science, they're irrational and uninspiring. They're just generally incredible, not credible. In fact, when I was in uh, Nashville, I was studying for a final in grad school, and I remember I had my books stacked up next to me as I'm working at Starbucks, and I'm studying for this final, and a guy comes up and he asks me, oh, you look like you're a student. You must be a law student because he saw all the books. And I said, oh, no, actually, I'm training to be a pastor. And he said, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I've never thought about, you know, Christianity that much. I've never thought about spirituality that much. And we started having this long conversation about the Bible, about miracles, about Jesus. Somehow we got onto the Ten Commandments. And he asked me, how do you think we even got the Ten Commandments? And I said, well, I think God revealed them to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, and Moses delivered them to the Israelites. Moses spoke face to face with the living God, and he delivered that to his people. And he looked at me as if I had three heads, and he said, you don't really believe that, do you? You really believe that stuff? That shouldn't surprise us. Because that's how people have always, always viewed the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus, the story of his embarrassing crucifixion and subsequent embarrassing resurrection witness. Even Paul. Paul was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. Paul, he studied under the one of the most renowned teachers in Jewish law. Paul, who was this prolific writer, thinker, theologian. He was once writing a letter to a church in Corinth, and he made it very clear. He said, we preach Christ crucified. That's the God of the Bible, a God who is crucified, a God who is weak. As JP, who's a pastor here and a church planter here says, he says, we worship a naked, dead Jewish man on a cross 2,000 years ago. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, for the foolish of God is wise, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The crucifixion and resurrection witness were not powerful. They were not sensational. They were both even a little bit embarrassing but they were real. They were real. And notice if you look again at verses five and six, after we see these women go to the tomb, you see in verses five and six, Mark, he's eager to show us not only was the resurrection witness unexpected, but it was also bodily. Look again at verse five. It says that these women, they enter the tomb and you have to kind of understand what this would have been like. So there would have been a cutout about six feet by six feet into limestone on the side of a hill outside of Jerusalem. And it was about six feet deep. And they would have come into this tomb, which had an antechamber, this six by six kind of cube would have been an antechamber. And then at the back wall of this tomb would have been a two foot by two foot cutout that the women would have had to go underneath and crawl into and there, once you were in that space, there was about a four foot wide channel by eight foot wide 
by six foot wide. And on the side of the cave would have been where you would have placed dead bodies. They enter into this tomb and we read in verse 5 that once they had done that, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The body that these women had witnessed crucified on Friday afternoon, the body that they had witnessed taken from the cross and wrapped in a linen shroud by Joseph of Arimathea, the body they had seen laid in this tomb on Friday night, that body was no longer there. This angel described in maybe the most understated way that you possibly can as a young man in white points to the place where they had laid him and says, do not be alarmed. He is risen. He is not here anymore. You know, it's precisely at this point that there's a lot of confusion around Easter, you know, because at this time of year, you can hear songs on the radio, modern songs, songs like that are sometimes sung at church, songs like God's Not Dead. This song goes, my God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, roaring like a lion. You even hear it in older hymns as well. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That can lead to a lot of confusion because if you just go by those songs, you're prone to think, well, the resurrection is just some sort of like spiritual, internal, emotional sort of sentimental feeling of hope. No, it is a bodily resurrection. You ask me how I know he lives. He's no longer in the tomb. His body's not there. His body has risen from death to life. It's a bodily resurrection. I was a grad student, again, at Vanderbilt, and I remember one of the very first chapels that I went to at Vanderbilt Divinity School. There was a religious studies professor, and he was teaching about resurrection, he made this claim. He said, people have always misunderstood the resurrection. The resurrection wasn't literal. It wasn't a bodily resurrection. It was something that happens in all of us when we realize that all of the darkness and death in our world can be overcome by hope and by the light of humanity. And there was, you know, smooth jazz playing in the background as he preached this too. I, I remember thinking, as I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm a first-year grad student. Here's this respected religious studies professor. And I remember thinking, if that's true, if the resurrection was not a bodily resurrection from the dead, if this is just a spiritual symbol of hope, then there's no hope. There's no hope. If you have a terminal illness, this is it. If you have a loved one who is sick and won't make it to the end of this year, this is it. If you have cancer, this is it. This world is all that there is, and there is actually no hope beyond darkness and death. At the end of the day, you can talk all you want about spirituality, about being a spiritual person, 
about the hope of humanity in a dark world, but in the end, hope does not win. Death wins. And again, this thought struck me. Remember, I'm first-year grad student. I'm, I'm training to be a pastor. I had never even stepped foot in a church as a pastor. And I remember thinking, you really can test if your view of Jesus is real or false based on whether you can honestly look a person in the eye as they are on the brink of death and you can tell them without embellishment, in simplicity, in clarity, and directly what it is that you believe. I remember I, I just got this email this past week from this member of our church who has traveled back to the East to visit her 95-year-old mother who was sick. And as she was there, her father had digestion issues. He couldn't eat, and they rushed him to the emergency room and found out not only was there her mom sick, but her father also had cancer that had spread throughout his body. They gave him two weeks to live. When I received that email, I thanked God that I could say to that family, Jesus is risen. He has been resurrected from death to life. And if you have faith in him, in his death to forgive you of sins, in his resurrection to secure eternal life, you have real hope. Death does not win. You too will be resurrected with Christ on the last day, and you too will live with him in eternity. This resurrection is bodily. The resurrection is real. Without that, there is no hope. After all, what else could you say to a family like that? Could you look that person in the eye with two weeks to live and say, Jesus is not really resurrected? No. No, he's He's, he's not really resurrected. That's just a metaphor. He's still in a cave in a tomb outside Jerusalem somewhere. It's a metaphor that hope has prevailed and that the darkness does not overcome all the light and goodness of humanity. Don't tell me that on my deathbed. This angel, this messenger from heaven, tells these women clearly, directly, verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The resurrection is real. It was unexpected. It was witnessed. It was bodily. And as we close, you, you see lastly in these last two verses, it was terrifying. The resurrection was terrifying. Look again at verse 7. We read, the angel speaks again to these women saying, go, Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And in response to this, these women are utterly terrified. Look at the words that are used. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is terrifying. One of the things I do around here, um, just because I like to keep the mood a little bit light, um, throughout the work week, I like to scare people who are in the office. It's just one of the things I like to do. Sometimes Aaron will be working on the stage here, and I'll go up this back stairwell, and I'll come out here and scare him. One time, Amber, who's our children's director, I really wanted to scare her, which is one of my favorite things to do to Amber. In her office, there's a closet with a ladder that goes up to the roof with a hatch door. 
So one day I got up onto the roof and I went across, went to the hatch, opened it up, went down the ladder into her closet. She didn't hear anything, right? And I'm looking through this little crack in the door and I can see there's Amber sitting at her desk and I'm waiting for her. She doesn't know that I'm in there. And then all of a sudden I see her pick up the cell phone to make a call. And I wait about a minute and she's talking to somebody and there, right as she's, you know, in mid-conversation, I pop out, phone goes in the air, call ends. She's absolutely terrified, right? It just so happened she was renewing an insurance policy. And uh, no, that's, that's not true. That wasn't really happening. Amber was so scared that the call ends. The person actually had to call her back, say, hey, are you okay? Since then, Amber's tried to scare me back unsuccessful. So the score, Daniel won, Deer Creek Kids Ministry, zero, okay? <laughs> That's not the kind of terror these women experienced here. That's surprise. I'm shocked. No, the terror these women experience here is the same kind of terror that happens throughout the Bible when anybody encounters the living God. There's a man, his name is Isaiah. He's a perfect example of this. Isaiah was this great prophet, lived during the 6th century. And Isaiah is sitting one day and all of a sudden the heavens open up and he sees a transcendent vision of the living God entering into the temple. He sees these angelic type uh, creatures known as fiery angels, seraphim. And they're saying back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The thresholds of the temple start to shake in heaven. The house of God is filled with smoke, which is symbolic of the glory and majesty and goodness of God. And then all of a sudden, what does Isaiah do? Well, he cries out, woe is me. For I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He has seen and encountered the living God. And he is terrified. People saw Jesus this way as well. In fact, Jesus, in even his veiled human body, we read that at times people got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and they fell down utterly terrified and astonished. In fact, there's this one story where Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and he visits a man who has a legion of demons. And when this legion sees Jesus from afar, we read, he ran and fell down before him and crying out in a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. This is the God who holds the whole world in his hands. The God who holds the very breath that we breathe in his hands. This is the God who holds the keys of life and death in his hands. And having encountered the living God, these women are terrified. This is countercultural. When we think of encountering God, encountering Jesus, we often think of a serene, tranquil, placid, easygoing experience. But in Scripture, when people witness 
the power of Almighty God, the one who holds the keys of death in his hands. They quake, they are alarmed, they are seized by fear and trembling and astonishment because this God is real. And it's into this terrifying encounter. Hearing about the resurrected Jesus that the angel and messenger of God speaks a profound message of hope and grace. You may have missed it. You may have just barely gone through this and overread it. But notice again what the angel says. He says, go. Tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Go tell the disciples and Peter and Peter rewind to Thursday night to mention the disciples included Peter. Of course, you talk about the disciples and Peter is included in that, but a lot's changed since then, hasn't it? The same Peter who pledged allegiance to Jesus on Thursday night saying, even if it means death, I will not deny you, Jesus. That same Peter just hours later would deny Jesus not once, but three times. And fast forward to Friday afternoon, he had completely abandoned Jesus to die alone, completely forsaken him. A lot has changed from Thursday night to Sunday morning. I don't know how the other disciples viewed Peter, but I know that Peter in his heart of hearts knew that a lot had changed. I know that Peter thought a lot about Peter in those days. And I'm confident that Peter no longer thought of himself as a disciple. He thought of himself as a failure, a coward, a betrayer, a denier, a man who had abandoned his friend and his king. Anybody else done that? I'm not supposed to do this, but I watched Ted Lasso. (laughs) And I don't care what you think about me. One of the main characters, her name is Rebecca, uh, and there's this story in season two where Rebecca goes to a funeral for her father, and as she's at this funeral, a revelation comes out about her father that Rebecca's father had had serial affair after serial affair after serial affair on her mother, betraying his wife countless times, and Rebecca finds out about it at the funeral, and she confronts her mom, saying, why did you stay with him? He betrayed you. He cheated on you. He failed you countless times. Why didn't you leave him? And in only a way that Ted Lasso can do, Rebecca's mom says, I couldn't leave him. I love him. God tells these women through this angel, go tell the disciples and Peter. Even though he abandoned me, I have not abandoned him. I will meet him again. I love him. I still love him. In fact, the very reason Jesus was crucified, died, buried, and resurrected was to show his great love for people like Peter. See, on the cross, 
Jesus was not just dying a tragic human death. No, he was being crucified and punished for the very sins of those who have consistently failed, denied, betrayed, and abandoned God. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was crying that out because we have forsaken him. So he says, go, tell the disciples and Peter, Peter, that though he abandoned me, I have not abandoned him. I still love him. Go and tell the disciples and Peter very simply and directly that the resurrection, the hope of eternal life for sinners and betrayers like him, go and tell him the resurrection is real. And Peter, we know this had an impact on him because the very first words that Peter ever wrote to another church After the resurrection of Jesus were these, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for all of us who place our faith in him. The resurrection is real. It's the hope of eternal life. The end. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the risen one who still loves us even though we forsake you time and time again. God, I'm conscious that there are many people in here who have not embraced Jesus Christ or ever placed their faith in him in any real or any, any uh, true way, and God, I pray for those who, who maybe this morning want to do that. I pray that if they're hearing this message and it stirs their hearts, that they would place their faith in you. And, and I just like to ask, you know, with our eyes closed, our head bowed, if that describes you this morning, if you want to place your trust and your faith in the resurrected Jesus, would you just symbolize that by raising your hand? Because I'd love to pray for you. Would you do that? Okay. I see you in the back. Okay. All right, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who want to know the power of the resurrection, which is real, which is true, which really happened and which really gives us hope of eternal life. God, I ask that by your grace, you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would give them hope and eyes for eternal life, and that you would help them to follow Jesus all the days of their life. And God, we pray now that as we close this service, you would be honored, you would be worshiped, you would be glorified. And Jesus, you would remind us that you are our only hope as the one who holds the keys of life and death. We pray this all in your name. Amen.